Hi, welcome back to AR Zone. I'm your host, Carolyn Bailey. These continuing interviews on intersectional veganism and related issues are in association with VegFest UK. In today's interview, Roger Yates and I have invited Sarah Woodcock to return to speak with us about what's happening in the United States as a consequence of the recent US election results. Sarah is an intersectional vegan of colour living in Minnesota who originally spoke with us in our very first AR Zone intersectionality interview. She's the founder and executive director of TAVS, the Advocacy of Veganism Society. Sarah, thanks for joining us and welcome back. Thank you, Carolyn and Roger, for having me. It's a pleasure to be back and I'm really looking forward to talking with you today. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah, I'm going to start with a rather stark question. What do you think all of this means for the animal advocacy community, particularly from an intersectional perspective? Yeah, so I'm going to be completely honest and tell you both that I almost had to cancel or you know, needed to reschedule this interview spot too many times to count. Um, in my role as a pro-intersectional animal advocate, when it comes to interviews and um, talks, I really try to have my message like really buttoned up, really polished, and really actionable, so that people who do take the time to listen, you know, can go out into the world and um, you know make positive changes. But since the election of Trump here, I'm afraid that I can't commit to any of that. For me, as a woman of color um, in my world and as a citizen and resident in the United States, everything has changed. We're in trouble. We're in really big trouble. So to answer your question about what all of this means for the animal advocacy community, um, honestly, it's bad news. It's, it's bad news across the board due to almost guaranteed increase um, in state repression and because our ability to do animal advocacy was and is always an extension of our privilege in many ways. For example, it's oftentimes made possible due to our own combinations that we have of class privilege or able-bodied privilege, racial privilege, or even gender privilege. Um, you know, it's though people who belong to different marginalized or oppressed groups are going to find themselves um, you know, squished in those areas or challenged in those areas even more than they already were. So I think our ability as a community, uh, especially for people of color in the animal advocacy community, is that we're mo even more impeded than we already were in advocating for animals in both practical ways as well as symbolic ways. I am even less safe as a woman of color advocating for animals in my community. I'm even less safe as a woman of color advocating for animals online and taking, quote, radical positions um, you know, in both veganism as well as other positions that have to do with justice, um, such as anti-racism, those positions that would help us to unravel oppressive systems and bring about justice. And as a community, we're already seeing um, an increase in hate crimes against people from all sorts of marginalized communities. And as I posted recently on um, my Facebook profiles, that I don't think that most vegans, um, most white vegans realize that now that people of color are under even more attack. The animal rights movement is even more impeded than it already was. We were already such a minority, and now we're even um, more impeded because people of color are in even a more vulnerable spot. We're even less able to advocate for other animals than we already were. And the vegan world, you know, a lot of times we hear, especially white vegans, talk about, you know, making, quote, the world vegan. It's not going to happen from white people 
barging into the communities of people of color. So what it's basically done is it's just really caused, I think, it's really put um, a severe, severe limitation on the ability of the movement to grow. And I think we had been starting to gain some progress and I feel that we're impeded in many ways. And, you know, just to make it clear too, of course, like I'm in the United States and I'm speaking very, very, very much from a United States perspective. So when I say this, um, you know, I just want to keep in mind that I don't think everything I say applies to everyone in the world, but this is from my perspective, of course. Thanks, Sarah. It's such a serious situation. I don't think that a lot of people, particularly people outside the United States, understand the seriousness of the situation. I've seen a lot of reactions on social media, and it seems to be more intersectional, intersectionality-minded advocates who are outraged. Would you mm-hmm. say that's a fair assessment? Yeah, I think that, like, you know, people that are that occupy different groups of privilege they've always had the ability to not be aware of the issues that impact these vulnerable or marginalized communities. And I think what, you know, the election of Trump here has done is it's just exacerbated that. It's like, you know, the people who were already angry about, you know, racism in the vegan community are maybe even more angry and feeling like, you know, we weren't listened to and, you know, and, uh, at a time when things were a little more free than they are now, um, we could have made even more progress. And so, you know, I think there's definitely a lot of um, anger around that topic. And I think that, you know, people that were already justice minded are even, you know, they're going to be have a more heightened sense of sensitivity to uh, what the Trump election means and what the implications are for people in the United States as well as abroad. Thanks, Sarah. Hi Sarah, it's uh, hmm. I've I've got my sociologist hat on a little bit, and because um, there's been a bit of hand wringing about the the issue of uh, women voting for Trump, right? And you know what what we kind of tend to say in sociology is that um, you know we look at socialization. Part of that is internalization, and so one essential part of patriarchy is that women internalize you know its values, and you know men act it out, and women internalize it in, in that in that sense. And what we seem to see with Trump is is a glaring example of all that now. Do you think any of that, or you know, how do you would you explain why so many women seem to have supported Donald Trump? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, seeing the statistics come out, I think for people of color hasn't been too surprising that 53% of white women voted for voted for Trump. Um, that did vote. I think that. There's an intuitive sense for people of color here, at least I can speak for myself, that, um, you know, and especially if we're part of like an anti-racism movement and an anti-racism awareness that, yes, absolutely 53% of um, white women don't have an understanding of anti-racism and don't um, are going to feel more safe with a white man um you know, protecting them. I think ultimately the fact that white women came out in support of Trump like this is that it has less to do with patriarchy and not voting for um, Hillary in that respect and more to do with white supremacy, less to do with sexism and more to do with racism. I read an article and like, I really can't say it better that I'd just like to read a couple paragraphs if that's all right with you from an article that I found online called White Women Voted for Trump in 2016 Because They Still Believe White Men Are Their Saviors. It was on a website called Quartz, which is QZ.com. So it reads like this. 
White women have a history of betraying their sisters. The 2016 election was no exception. According to exit polls, 53% of white women in America, and that really should read the United States, that's my commentary, voted for Donald Trump. The pattern of white women choosing white men over women of color underscores some of the more insidious machinations of patriarchy and the racism ingrained in the feminist movement. White women's modus operandi for gaining power, economic, political, and otherwise, is simple. Acquire power from those who have it, and those who have historically have it, have had it, are white men. This has resulted in white women's historic abandonment of their black and brown sisters, as well as their more heinous adoption of white supremacist rhetoric to advance their own status. These ethically unjustifiable strategies are evident in some of the feminist movement's darkest days, beginning with the fight for suffrage. After the decision was made to exclude women from the 15th Amendment, which gave free black men the right to vote, leading suffragists... Susan B. Anthony and Elizabeth Cady Stanton adopted blatantly racist rhetoric. Frustrated with the stonewalling of women's suffrage, they actively courted and collaborated with white supremacists in exchange for financial assistance to advance their cause. By aligning themselves with white men, these early feminists turned their back on black women and even black suffragists. White male supremacists welcomed the coalition, as Ta-Nehisi Coates wrote in a piece at The Atlantic, because it would shore up white nationalism at the voting booths. I read that article this morning, actually, Sarah. It was It's a very interesting article, and there's a lot of information in there that does explain some of what's happened. Is there anything that you can suggest that we can do to make, make this different? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of my advice, like in the beginning, I was just like, <laughs> I was in a personal panic mode and I was just like, you know, in the U.S. we have an organization, a national group called SURGE, which stands for standing up for, sorry, showing up for racial justice. And I um, was just, you know, pleading with everyone on my Facebook with my reach, right, um, to get involved with SURGE and... Yeah. You know, Sean King was, uh, he's a, a black activist here um, who became more well known because of his advocacy of Black Lives Matter movement, but he's been involved with anti racism for several, several years. Um, he's been raising awareness about hate crimes going on. So, you know, initially those were my two pieces of advice that I was giving people was like, at least in the U.S., you know, get involved with Surge if you're if you're white and you're you want to get involved with anti-racism action, which is desperately needed now. And then follow Sean King's page. Later on in our talk, I'll give some more pieces of advice as well because after I've gotten out of sort of my panic mode, I've had a chance to step back and and incorporate some additional pieces of advice um, in addition to those two. Uh, Sarah, before we we move on, can I just kind of go back to this thing about why people are, are voting for Trump and this might sound like a more trivial issue but there's a politician in Britain called Boris Johnson and he's always been seen as a bit of a buffoon and also he's been on kind of TV shows you know panel shows this kind of stuff and then he was elected as the mayor of London and now he's a major minister in the current Tory cabinet do you think there's a possibility that some people voted for Trump just to kind of see what would happen in this kind of reality TV kind of way. Um, I think it's certainly possible. I mean, especially the people that have 
little to nothing to lose. I mean, they certainly can't claim that, like in the U.S., that they value the Constitution or that they value their freedom or the vision of the, quote, founding fathers, which is often referred to in a lot of this right wing rhetoric, is that, you know, these people are just trying to protect our Constitution and protect what our founding fathers wanted. I mean, clearly, that's like literally the opposite of what's going to happen um, under a Trump presidency. So I think it's possible that, you know, people that don't have as much to lose and maybe they're not in a vulnerable vulnerable group um, just felt like, you know, their vote, meh, whatever, you know, and they, they can kind of joke around with things like that. Um, certainly possible. And, you know, similar to, and I'm not at all an expert on this, but how I heard some people uh, voted for Brexit because they didn't really take their vote seriously or didn't really think it would matter. Um, I'm sure there was an aspect of that in the U.S. recent election as well. Yeah, yeah, it'd be, be so frightening, though, wouldn't it, if if you've got the Brexit vote and now this, because some people just wanted to have a bit of a laugh at everything and watch it on TV. Right, you know? right, and then, you know, not realizing or having an appreciation at all for the real-life implications that this has on not only adults, but I think particularly sad is, like, for children. You know, they they're already scared, and there have been so many more instances of bullying and hate crimes happening to children and that's literally heartbreaking you know across across the board whether it be for you know racial differences or whether it be for religious differences or perceived um, sexual orientation differences children are being bullied even more and you know because adults haven't squashed this type of horrible behavior uh, to each other and now it's escalating adults to adults you know, children are learning from our example and they're repeating the same sorts of horrible behaviors to their fellow children. And, you know, it's really heartbreaking. I feel really, really bad for the children. So, Sarah, along those lines, why do so many people, do you think, turn to authoritarians when they feel unfairly treated or disenfranchised? I can understand that, for example, white coal miners may feel unfairly treated now that their jobs and even their way of life are becoming obsolete. But putting their trust in someone who seems ready to limit individual freedom while consolidating power in himself and in other elites seems like a fundamental error in judgment. Right-wing policies tend to reinforce inequality, don't they? So this is an excellent question. And I think that, you know, amidst people's very valid feelings of anger and fear over what's going on right now, they're just wondering, how in the world, like what, you know, what is going on and how are people really, really voting for this? There's an excellent article and video that your question made me think of. It's on this exact topic and it actually came out back in March and it was a time when people here in the U.S., I think, were in disbelief over the fact that Trump may really be on the ticket um, for the presidential election. And I'll send you the link to the article, and it's now also become a short, I think, six-minute video so that you can post them along with this podcast. But they're really insightful, and they talk about 
basically authoritarianism and the the rise of American authoritarianism. And what the article basically is about is, quote, a niche group of political scientists may have uncovered what's driving Donald Trump's ascent. What they found has implications that go well beyond 2016. And it talks about basically exactly the people that came out um, in droves to vote for Trump. Um, and that's not to say that they were just only people from, um, you know, a lower economic class. Um, that were white that came out to vote. Of course, the racism of the vote was across all classes, but it did offer some really interesting psychological insights in, and political science insights into what we're witnessing and what we're experiencing here. So I'll link to those. And again, like it's going to say it a lot better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Sarah. You recently posted an article on Facebook about an Asian woman from Minnesota being verbally abused soon after the election and then that woman being handcuffed by the police. As you've already mentioned, there have been a whole lot of hate crimes following the election. As a woman of colour living in the US yourself at this time, how has this affected you personally? So, well, I've never felt completely safe as an Asian American woman in the United States. Um, I have been made to feel like an outsider my whole life. I was um, born in South Korea, but I was brought here when I was six months old and adopted. And so I was raised here um, my whole life. So I certainly feel like a U.S. citizen, which I am. And I certainly feel like this is my home. But when I was a young child, I received nonstop questions and jokes from my peers um, before I even understood why. I thought everyone got questions and jokes like this, um, racial questions and racial jokes. Um, and I've been verbally assaulted um, in public due to my race on several occasions in both childhood, but also adulthood. <laughs> so feeling unsafe and different is nothing new uh, as a matter of just survival from when I was a teenager and then into adulthood. I've self-educated about racism and sexism and other forms of oppression just because when you're a woman of color, like you don't really have an option but to to self-educate on these topics so you can figure out what in the world is going on. But what the election of Trump has done is it's given people of color, uh, women of color in particular, something tangible that we can point to when white people deny racism and when men deny sexism. Uh, it's just a clear cut thing. And, you know, I think we've had examples of clear cut, you know, things of where, you know, yes, society is how I've self-educated that it is, but there's such a rampant um, denial from um, from white people and from men about racism and sexism. And so everyone who belongs to a vulnerable group, um, whatever that group may be, and it doesn't end with racism and sexism, but it goes absolutely beyond, should be completely disillusioned now about our fellow humans and where their values lie or where the lack of those values lie. So personally, um, I, and it's sad, but I carry self-defense items um, even more now than I used to. And I think a particularly sad moment for me was having to cancel a get-together with a friend recently because I don't feel safe going out alone as much as I used to. It kind of depends on the day now, and it just depends on my mood and if I'm ready to be kind of on defense or if I'm not and just how strong I'm feeling that day. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, 
I feel especially bad for the children. I've seen hate crimes happening against children by children. And to me, this is a sign that we as adults are absolutely failing them um, just to not even give them like a safe environment to grow up in. And, um, you know, just seeing hate crimes happen from teachers to their students and be captured on video in the United States is heartbreaking because you know that, you know, these are now being circulated because of um, what's happened with Trump. And there's a there's a chance to start talking about these hate crimes that have always been happening. But you know that they've been happening before. And ultimately, I think the worst part is and my gut tells me this is that it's going to get worse. Um, and I, I don't like to be having to be the bearer of negativity, but I really do think it's going to get a lot worse before and if it ever gets better. So unfortunately, um, it's not to say that we can't do anything. If we're able to, we can do a lot um, and we should feel empowered to do as much as we think, you know, as much as we as much as we can do, we should do. So this election did make me realize, and it's it's hard to say, but I think it's the truth, is that um, white people haven't been doing their anti-racism work. And we as people of color have to stop expecting that they will. I think in my heart I always like had this belief um, in that there are some white people who really do care, and there are some people who really are going to do their work and really are going to understand that this is an injustice that needs to be it cannot be dismantled just by people of color. People of color may be able to form their own movements and their own lives and their own societies and their own communities. Um, and I think maybe that maybe that is part of the answer is just really investing in the efforts of people of color. But um, as I've experienced increased fears for my and my friends and my family members' personal safety and then gone online, um, maybe that's a mistake to read comments from white people about Trump on Facebook and how we need to give him a chance. Like just a flat out like appointing white, like flat out like bold, like blatant white supremacists and how we need to give this a chance. It just shows me like white people really don't get racism. And even the ones who claim to get it or travel around the world speaking about it or are platformed because they supposedly get it. Um, I just am kind of having this disillusionment that they really don't get it and that we really have to stop expecting them to and we need to find out some other solutions. So, you know, I'm saying this now not to criticize white people for the sake of criticizing them because at the end of the day, what I'm really criticizing is the, the system of white supremacy. But I'm saying it to just be an alarm clock for any people of color who may be listening that we really do need to wake up and we need to focus our time and our energy and our money on efforts that align with our values. And that means all of them as best that you can. So when I get into a little bit later, a little more on solutions and like advice, I have some more advice in this area. Thanks. Yes, a, pow a powerful answer, uh, Sarah. And I think, um, I mean, for me, it, it just underlines the importance of intersectionality. And, um, you know, if we, we need to start taking it seriously in the movement. And that probably means, or does mean, really, that we're going to have to kick out the racists in the movement. You know, that's uh, one of the first jobs, I, I would think. Bingo. And so, can I going expand back on that a little? Mm. I think you're absolutely right. And I think that people, white people, you, you need to take a stand. 
if you are pro-racist, because in, if you understand racism as a system, then all white people are racist. This is like racism education 101 is that if racism is a system, then all benefactors of racism are racist. But you can be pro-racist or pro-upholding racism and white supremacy or anti-racist and against upholding the system of white supremacy because it's unjust. But like you know, the the oppressing class of white people in the vegan movement, because the vegan movement is an extension of society, we need, you need to put your foot down and say racism is not okay. And when a person of color, and they are the arbiters of what is racist, says something is racist, it's fucking racist. No ifs, ands, or buts. Get that ideology out of the movement, or get that person out of the movement if they're unwilling to work through it. You know, there's an opportunity to grow and change, but to see those call outs as a chance to make our movement genuinely stronger. So what I was leaning to was that I had this realization that, you know, now as we're seeing a lot of repression and as we're coming to terms as a world like citizenry of what a Trump presidency means, not only for United States citizens, but also for the world. Um, what this means, we're seeing a lot of really good uh, efforts. People are hitting the streets. People are saying this person is not my president, which is a symbolic and factual statement at this time. That's really, really good. But I think the realization I've had that you two can share with me is that if this revolution doesn't include animals, it's not complete, right? We know that. Like if oppressions are connected and systems of oppression are connected, if the animals are not included in this so-called revolution, it's not complete. I had this realization that the vegan movement may actually be the the pro-oppressive, not the pro-intersectional portion of it, but the pro-oppressive part of the vegan movement, people who wanted to keep the racist in the movement, people who were not for including an analysis of racism and how it impacts our movement and how it may prevent the growth of the movement for the betterment of the animals, that it may be to blame for the fact that we didn't gain traction in society to get the movement to a big enough place to have a big enough and strong enough and prominent enough bonds with other social justice movements in place so that when Trump was elected, that these revolutions that were hitting the street included the animals. Now what we're doing is we're in crisis mode and we're just holding back the tide of like hundreds of years old. We've seen this a million times before rise of racism rise of sexism, rise of just barbarity, right? Like, we're holding back a crisis. We're, we're in the middle of a crisis. We're holding back the tide of, like, oppressions and, and ways of discriminating and being bigots against things that are just super, like, ancient. Like, we're so, like, you know, quote, not evolved, right? But I think I had this realization that, like, the vegan movement really lost an opportunity if in the last... Five to ten years, we had gotten our shit together and we had actually listened to the people of color who were putting themselves out on the line in the movement and the feminists in the movement who, not the white feminism proponents, but the pro-intersectional fem- feminism proponents like Corey Lee Wren, and had listened to them and said, this movement, you know, instead of mocking them and marginalizing them in our own movement, if we had gotten a hold of that and taken that to heart and actually cared about the animals, we could have been the revolution on the streets right now. 
but we're not. And I think that we really fell down and we really failed the animals because we're not that right now. And we're just trying to hold back this crisis. Sarah, I could not possibly agree with you more. Absolutely. I don't have anything to add. I just think what you said is, is spot on. Sarah, I'm not terribly sure this is a this is a follow up um, question in a way, but um, I think it's something to do with with white folks thinking they're kind of helping. You know, what, what's the what's the story with the safety pins? You know, it's the it's a new peace train or something. And yeah, there's um there's some there's something going on. Is it a good thing? Is is it a bad thing? What, what do you think? Well, I I've been seeing um a lot of opinions on both sides about it, and of course. In these situations, I would absolutely defer to the opinions of people of color if they find that it's helpful or not. And personally, like, I'll just speak for my own self. If I saw someone wearing a safety pin in public, I would be grateful. I would be grateful that they are showing, and I don't care if they feel good about it. I would feel grateful knowing that if I need to look to someone in a moment of crisis, that there's someone there wearing it. I'm not going to think they're going to, like, jump in front of a bullet for me, but I I think it's great. And I think that, you know, look, I saw when I was going to get um, a drink in a in a drive through this week, someone had drawn a swastika over an Obama Biden sticker bumper sticker on a black woman's car in front of me. And I think, look, if they've got their swastikas, then we we need a symbol, too. We need a symbol that doesn't say like you know i'm marching around i'm some huge ally or anything but just a symbol that like i do i'm not okay with what's going on this is not business as usual so i guess if i were to come down on one side or the other i would say safety pins are good and i would want to see them in public and um and i you know i'm okay with them but yeah does it it certainly doesn't stop at a safety pin like you know there's a lot of other actions that if you're in a privileged place by all means go far beyond it but I haven't really gotten the sense that a lot of the people who are just, you know, wearing, I haven't actually seen a lot of people wearing them. I haven't seen anyone in public wearing them, but, um, you know, using them online and whatnot. Like, I, I think it's fine. It's, it's a welcome sign for me, in my own opinion. This is me only speaking for myself. It's a welcome sign amidst all of the scary things that are going on right now. I'd much rather see a safety pin pop up than a swastika at this point. Yeah, so it's not not the top of your agenda. I, yeah, I get that. Yeah. No, exactly. Do you think in some ways it might be a reaction to people being so shocked and outraged that Donald Trump actually made it this far? And And I guess to follow on from that, why has there been so much shock and outrage that a white man who has made his misogyny and his racism and his ableism and bigotry in general so abundantly clear to, was elected as the president. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just the idea that, you know, for me, the shock came from realizing the implications for my own safety and that I'll be even less safe. Uh, the chances of someone verbally assaulting me are even higher and it's happened to me before, and just the implications and letting it sink in of how this is going to impact my life, my family, my friends, and my animal advocacy. And the outrage came from what I spoke about before as far as the fact that white people haven't been doing their anti-racism work. 
and we as people of color have to stop expecting that they will and that men haven't been doing their anti-sexism work. We as women have to stop expecting that they will. And then just, you know, just the idea overall that it, the shock and the outrage does come from if it's being displayed from, you know, white men, especially the idea that, you know, those memes that we see online that are like, you know, slavery ended, you know, women mm. not being able to vote in the past, this post oppressive mindset that all of these systems of oppression um, are in the past and that they're not something that is uh, is just changing forms and that they still exist and that that's the way it will always be. That justice isn't like a destination that you get to. It's an ongoing place that we all have to work together to maintain and to uphold. And it's about vigilance and that we got really lax on the vigilance and we were making some progress, at least again, speaking from the U.S. perspective on marriage equality. We're making some progress as far as um, on policies. Uh, but at the same time, just this, we sunk into this kind of idea that like, well, I think a lot of it was backlash, but we sunk into this idea that oppression is a thing of the past and that we're only moving forward. Sarah, the answers to all of these problems are obviously going to be very complex. But what's your advice, not only to people in the US, but to all of us? Because I think that all of us who care about oppression and care about racism and misogyny have all been affected by this. Absolutely. So I guess the way I see it is that we are in crisis mode now. I keep waiting and hoping for what I'm thinking of in my mind as like a new normal, but I don't really want to get too comfortable. I don't want anyone to get too comfortable with, you know, what's going on here now. It's no longer business as usual. There are going to be even more constant attacks on our freedoms um, as United States citizens and residents and even more state oppression. We know for a fact that's coming and that's sad and scary and it's a lot easier to lose freedoms than it is to get them back. Um, and at this time, and I emphasize at this time because my recommendations have been evolving as I learn more uh, daily and as I incorporate more viewpoints, especially from people of color. But at this time, I do have several pieces of advice, both for white people as well as for anyone who may be listening. Um, I'm encouraging still white people to get involved uh, if they're in the U.S. I think showing up for racial justice is just a U.S.-based organization at this time. But to get involved with Surge, showing up for racial justice. And if you are um, in another country, if there is an anti-racist group, please get involved with it or consider starting just even a local group. Um, and of course, you're being vegan. You can bring that into the group and make that foundational. Maybe you're already running one. Number two, especially if you're in the United States, support, if you can, to the greatest extent that you can, the American Civil Liberties Union. The ACLU um, are going to be critical. They already have been in our, in our days that are forthcoming here. I do recommend following Sean King, S-H-A-U-N King, his Facebook page and learn about, you know, it's good to go to his page, I think, to keep the perspective. Um, like I said before, he's been he's become very popular because of his involvement with the Black Lives Matter movement. But he's raising awareness as well on 
all of the different hate crimes that are going on to all sorts of vulnerable groups. And he's also offering some solutions that um, have been helpful and that I've been incorporating, such as an advice piece four, which is the Donald J. Trump resistance. And it, the website for that is the DJTR.com. And it's going to be basically, I think, a series of action items of companies to move your support away from because they have come out in support of uh, Trump. So, for example, I've already changed. Um, we have a large hardware store chain here in the United States that um, has been known to support Trump. And so I've been moving my purchases away from that company. I used to be really loyal to them, and I was just about to spend um, thousands and thousands of dollars with them to get some new windows. Um, but, you know, just making economic changes in your decisions are going to be really important, um, as we know. They have to be vegan choices, and you want them to be anti-oppressive when it comes to human slavery, modern-day human slavery. But in addition, now there's this new layer of, like, are we supporting outright oppression through the support of Trump? Number five, and this I emphasize a lot, these aren't in any particular order, is support the existing initiatives by people of color and indigenous people with an emphasis on those projects that are run and guided by women of color and indigenous women. That's a, that's a piece of advice for anyone who may be listening. Number six, you know, we've got our own little movement going here. Like, it's the peace train movement. Jump on the peace train. Listen to these great AR Zone podcasts. You know, if you've got a good book, book thrust it at people that you know. That, I guess, would be my advice, Carolyn. <laughs> You seem to you seem to be lost for words there, Karen. Sarah, you, <laughs> I'm I can't stop laughing. <laughs> Sarah, thank you so much. Your advice, as always, is beyond valuable, and we appreciate you spending your time with us today so much. And and again, for your insights. And your perspectives. Um, I can't thank you enough, but thank you. Yeah, I want to thank you too both for like giving me this chance to talk about this. And as I said, like I can only speak from my perspective and I'm always learning and realizing that my previous perspectives were limited in some way. And so by all means, like continue to listen to other people of color, other women who are speaking up about what they find the solutions to be. There's going to be a lot of different perspectives. And by all means, like now we need we need a lot of perspectives and we need historical experience. We need sociological experience. We need, you know, all sorts of experience to weigh in on how do we hold back this crisis and what, how can we keep together, though the, those of us who know that this is just a dark time in our history, how can we keep together and, and get back to making this world a better place for everyone? Thanks, Sarah, and thanks again for everything that you are continuing to do on behalf of both humans and other animals. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you, Sarah.